You know, uh, reality shows kind of made their inroads into our culture and our consciousness. Oh, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years ago. The first one I remember uh, is Survivor, probably the, the granddaddy of them all, where people would get dropped on an island or some remote location and they would have to survive challenges and votes, not get voted off the island, and be the last survivor standing and win, I think, a million dollars or something like that. And since then, there's been all sorts of other reality shows that have kind of taken off. You see them all over the place. Shows like Chopped on the Food Network, uh, where they have a cooking competition. Top Gun, which is a great one on the History Channel, where all these expert marksmen try all sorts of uh, weapons to see who's the best shot at Top Gun. You see shows about America's next uh, model. Uh, um, You see The Biggest Loser, where people compete to see who can lose the most weight. Reality shows have really made their their way into our culture and consciousness. But, you know, one one kind of genre of sort of of, uh, reality show has not made its way into our on on the TV yet is a spiritual reality show. Can you imagine that? You know, there's kind of probably a reason for that. I mean, we don't think of. Of, of, of following Christ or matters of faith as a competition. They're not performance based. It's not about trying to weed other people out. But, but just imagine, if you would, there might be a, um, a reality show called The Biggest Debtor. Okay? And the premise would be who is the biggest sinner? Who, who owes God the most? Who's the biggest debtor? Can you imagine? Anybody want to volunteer for that one? I can't imagine it would make many. Um, it wouldn't get very high approval ratings. Um, but and nobody would think to think of following Christ or matters of faith in that regard. I mean, there's a shocking, shocking arrogance in, in that concept. There's a lack of humility. Um, after all, we're all sinners. We've all we all fall short of God's glory. But in today's story, today's scripture from Luke seven there's a man, one of the main characters, who kind of has that mindset. He kind of views the world, he views people through the lens of, of spiritual categories. There are the folks who are really righteous. There's the folks sort of in between. And then the folks who are the really the big losers, the big debtors, those who are the biggest sinners. And this story comes from Luke chapter 7. Now, before we launch into Luke chapter 7, I just want to kind of catch up to date. Last week, we started a new sermon series for the fall called Meals with a Master. That's why we have the, this nicely decorated dining table up here. And, and, the, and it's based in the Gospel of Luke. About 20% of the Gospel of Luke is, is Jesus who, who is sitting down for a meal, or breaking bread with something, sharing a meal with people. And there's, there's questions that are asked. There are stories that are told. There's parables that are shared. And there's all sorts of interactions and reactions we can see from Jesus and the people that he's eating with. And we began this story last week with a story of Jesus calling Levi. Levi was a tax collector. Uh, Levi actually ended up being named Matthew, uh, the gospel of uh, the author of the gospel of Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. But Jesus or Matthew, Levi, before he was called, was a tax collector. And Jesus asked him to follow him and become his disciple. And we know from scripture and from history that Levi slash Matthew did. But this week we come to the story that I mentioned. It's, it happens with Jesus at the house of a Pharisee named Simon. And they're, they're sitting down they're, they're having dinner. And all of a sudden their dinner party is interrupted by a most unexpected guest, a, a party crasher, a, a woman who was seen 
as the biggest debtor, the, the biggest sinner, the worst sinner in town. And as we look at the story, we're going to be focusing on the theme of mercy because mercy is at, at the core of this story. It's the core at the core of of the gospel. And we're going to be asking the question, how are we to respond? How do you and I respond when we when we bump into people, when we interact with people, when people come into our lives who are radically different than us? They may come from a, a different place spiritually. They may have a much different lifestyle or behavior than us. How are we to respond to them? And to answer that question, we're going to look at the theme of mercy. And so before we get to Luke 7, we're going to try to define what mercy is and also look at what mercy is not. Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 with these words, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So what, is it, what does it look like? What does it mean to, to be merciful? Well, mercy begins with sympathy, right? Feeling something for somebody, feeling, identifying with their pain or their hurt, their alienation, their loss. But it doesn't stop at just feeling. Mercy then leads to action. Mercy involves an attempt to help the person in need, an attempt to try to soothe their pain, to comfort them, to alleviate their pain. Mercy is different than mere sympathy. Mercy is also different than pity. Pity is when we feel sorry for somebody. You see somebody in a, in, who's hurting or down on their luck, we feel, sorry for, we feel sorry for them. We have pity. Maybe you're walking in a big city and, and there's several homeless people on the block and you feel sorry for them. You wonder what happened in their lives to bring them to this place. Uh, you know, and, and you feel sorry for them. You don't know how to respond, so you kind of look the other way and maybe you just walk on by. Pity creates distance between us and the people who are hurting. But mercy leads to action. It draws us closer and we end up relating to them. Mercy is different from compassion, too. Compassion, like mercy, involves both feeling and action. But compassion is expected. It's what what we expect a, a, a good, decent person to do. For example, in our community, sometimes there'll be a, a tragedy. Something awful will happen. Uh, maybe a house burns down and people don't have a place to stay or there's an awful auto accident or somebody ends up with a terminal disease or something like that. And there's, there are needs and often a fund will be set up and churches and schools and people will contribute to that. And that's wonderful. We should show compassion to those around us who are hurting. How can we not respond, right? But where mercy differs is that mercy is kindness, where it's not expected. Because the person showing mercy is under no obligation to show it, or because the person's suffering was maybe somehow partly their responsibility. For example, maybe you show up at school and there's a big project, you completely blanked it out. You didn't do it. Everybody else turns it in. You're supposed to turn it in. If you don't, you get a zero. No credit. The teacher says... Well, I'll tell you what, you can bring it in tomorrow and no penalty. That's mercy. Or suppose you're driving and you run a red light. You're distracted. You run a red light. There's a police officer. They pull you over. Instead of, instead of giving you a ticket, they give you a warning and tell you to go on and have a good day. That's mercy. 
Mercy goes beyond what might be considered normal and natural. Another example, Chuck Colson, maybe you recognize that name. He died a few years ago, but he's well known for a couple of things. One is he worked for Nixon and was convicted during the Watergate scandal, spent time in prison. During prison, he had an encounter with Christ. He became a believer, born again Christian. He established a ministry called Prison Fellowship, which ministered to thousands and thousands of men and women over the years. When he got out of prison, he became a speaker, an author. He spoke all over. He had radio spots. He, he did all, the rest of his life was dedicated to, to spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And he told a story in one of his radio spots about Iraq, where there was this U.S. Uh, triage medical team, response team. And they were doing their best to save the lives of two Iraqi insurgents who had been wounded in, in, in a fight. Um, and they had brought them in, and soldiers had brought them in, and... They did everything they could to try to save these two. One of them was going to make it. The other one was not going to make it unless they could find 30 pints of blood. So they sent out a, a, a call. And within minutes, dozens of American soldiers lined up ready to donate blood. This was, these were men who had fought and, and killed and wounded some of their friends and fellow soldiers. But at the head of the line was a battle-hardened soldier named Brian. And when a reporter asked him, If it mattered to him that he was giving blood to an enemy soldier, he replied, a human life is a human life. That's mercy, unexpected kindness toward a person in need. Finally, before we move on to Luke 7 and the story of Jesus sharing a meal uh, with a Pharisee and with this woman, we should point out that mercy is similar to grace, but they're slightly different in their focus. Both words we throw around a lot in church. Mercy is a response to a person's need. Grace is a response to a person's sin. Mercy offers help or healing. Grace offers forgiveness and restoration. Mercy often precedes grace, often can lead to acceptance of grace, but mercy is focused on the person's need, not immediately jumping to the person's sin. So taking all this together, we might say that mercy looks beyond a person's faults to his or her need. Mercy is not concerned with how or why a person got into the condition they're in. It doesn't dismiss sin, doesn't excuse it, doesn't ignore personal responsibility. No, but it simply responds with unexpected kindness to the need. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So let's look at the story now from Luke chapter 7. And again, we have three main characters. There's Simon the Pharisee, there's Jesus, and there's this woman. We'll start with Simon. Simon was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were the most devout people in Israel. They weren't clergy. They weren't, this wasn't their full-time job. They weren't paid to be religious. Rather, They were laymen who had devoted their entire lives to knowing and obeying and promoting God's law. In first century Israel, they were seen as the most godly people in the community. Now, it would have been a common practice in Jesus' day if you had a a kind of well-known speaker slash rabbi or prophet traveling through, that these religious pillars of the community, the Pharisees, would want to entertain them, get to know them and kind of connect, you know, movers and shakers kind of spending time together. And so that's what Simon is doing here. He invites Jesus to his house and no doubt some of his friends as well. 
to come along. Sort of like if you had a guest speaker, the chairman of the council or the chairman of the deacons might take them out for lunch after church. We're not told what Simon's motives are. It could have been he was simply trying to meet his obligation as uh, a, a prominent person in town. Uh, it could have been it was a trap. He was trying to catch Jesus doing or saying something that could be used to discredit him. Maybe he was genuinely interested in what Jesus had to say and who he was. We don't know. We're not told. Now, on such an occasion, it would have been pretty customary as well. Other people wanted to hear what was being said. They wanted to hear these movers and shakers, these primary influencers talking about big things, you know, the matters of the world and, and, and God and, and, and all those sorts of the scriptures. They, they would want to hear these things. And so kind of in a nod towards that direction. You know, uh, the Pharisee or whoever was hosting the party would kind of leave the windows open, leave the doors open so people could gather around and kind of listen in. But they weren't in the inner circle. And so when this woman kind of bursts on the scene, it's pretty surprising. It's pretty shocking. We don't know much about her. We don't know her name. Many people think she was Mary Magdalene, but we don't know for sure. All we know is that she had a reputation that she lived a sinful life in town. Don't know what, exactly what that was. Many think it was some sort of sexual sin, maybe a prostitute or a, or a woman with loose morals who was known for sleeping around. We don't know. But I'm pretty sure it wasn't just a wad of unpaid parking tickets. Okay? So this is sort of a, a, you know, a big deal. A religious gathering might be like if you had a life group in your, in your home and there's you know, several couples and you invite over a a speaker, an author, or pastor that you, who's traveling through town and you want to you get to know them, you want to hear their story, you want to be impressed by them, you want to impress them. And you're having this dinner and then a, a person walks in, maybe the town drunk, you know, a, a convicted criminal, I mean, who knows what, somebody, somebody who's been married and divorced ten times, whatever, they walk into the party and you're appalled. You don't know quite what to do. This is not what you expected. And the woman makes it worse because she not only comes into the party, but she she's very brazen. She comes up to Jesus and she begins weeping and is and she she takes her hair down, which a woman would not do except in the bedroom. And she begins to wipe his his feet and put oil and, and perfume on him. And it's very intimate, very way too familiar. You know, at this point, I'm guessing you could cut the tension in the knife in the room with a knife, you know. I doubt anybody's saying, hey, pass the potatoes, please. I'm guessing it's really quiet. Nobody's eating. Nobody's talking, probably just watching, watching Jesus and watching this woman. And they're shocked and offended, not simply by the woman, but by Jesus response. He seems quite comfortable with her presence. He seems to accept what she's doing to him. Listen to verse 44. Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Well, of course, Simon saw her. I mean, he hadn't taken his eyes off her probably since she walked into the room, nor had the other men. Simon had seen her all right, but all he saw was her sin and her reputation. Verse 39 gives us a glimpse into Simon's heart. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, talking about Simon, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who he is touching, who is touching him 
And what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. That's what Simon saw. But Jesus saw something different. He saw whatever woundedness and desperation had led her to this point. He saw the abuse and exploitation she had probably suffered at the hands of men. He saw the guilt and the shame that had kept her trapped in this destructive lifestyle. Jesus looked beyond her sin and he saw her need. Now keep in mind this woman probably for the past several years had only known one of two responses from men around town, either lust or judgment. Chances are every man in her life, most men in her life had either exploited her or condemned her, including the men in that room, but not Jesus Christ. He saw her as more than just that sinful woman. He saw a human being, a person who needed what every person needs, love, acceptance, forgiveness, grace, mercy. Now notice what Jesus does not do here. He doesn't pull away in embarrassment because he has concerns about his reputation. He's not worried what people might think of this. He doesn't rebuke her for the life she'd been living, even though he knew all about it. He didn't correct her awkward expression of worship. That was what the Pharisees in the room expected a prophet to do. But Jesus did not respond in the expected fashion. He seldom did. Instead, he graciously received her extravagant and unorthodox display of affection and worship. He rose to her defense when those around the table wanted to pass judgment on her. He dignified her behavior by describing it as worship of the highest order, and then he pronounced her forgiven of all her sins. That's mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy looks beyond a person's fault and sees their need. Doesn't ignore sin, doesn't sweep it under the rug, doesn't pretend it doesn't matter. I mean, Jesus himself implies she's a sinner because he says, I forgive you of your sins. He deals with the sin, but mercy chooses to respond to the need first instead of reacting to the sin. Think of it this way. If you're at a garage sale around town and you see this painting is covered with mud, but you recognize it because your art history classes, right? You recognize it's a, it's a Rembrandt worth millions of dollars. You get it, you take it home. Would you tend to focus on the mud or on the painting? Well, of course, you'd focus on the painting. You'd recognize it's a masterpiece worth countless money. You'd have to do something about the mud eventually, of course. You'd find an expert, somebody who could clean it up, somebody who um, could do that without damaging it. But your initial response, your heart's response would be be enthusiasm, right? And acceptance of the Rembrandt. When that sinful woman walked into the room, Jesus saw a masterpiece. All Simon saw was the mud. When that woman walked into the room, Jesus saw a woman created in God's image, created for eternal glory. All Simon saw was perhaps inappropriate dress and embarrassing behavior. When that woman walked in the room, Jesus saw her as a potential, saw her potential as a human being, as a person called to follow him and to be a disciple. All Simon saw was her 
painful and sinful past and her bad reputation. She was the biggest debtor, the biggest sinner. Now, we find it easy to condemn Simon and the Pharisees' reaction. We think, how could they be so clueless, so heartless, so hard-hearted? But the sad truth is, this kind of thing happens in religious circles all the time. We can tend to make that mistake, too. We can look at people and see their addiction instead of their pain. We can look at people and see their inappropriate dress instead of their need for somebody to notice them. We can see their sexual recklessness instead of their longing to be loved. We can hear their foul language instead of their fear of not being heard at all. We can react to their sin instead of responding to their need. I mean, who knows how many people over the years have walked away from churches and become atheists. There's a book by John Burke, the pastor of a church in Austin, Texas, uh, who he and a small group of people started a church with the vision for reaching people who are far away from God, especially younger people. And so to research it, they, they, did, they did a study, they, did, they gathered research into the lifestyles of people all over the country, especially those under 40. And this is what they discovered. One out of three women will have had an abortion. Nearly one out of three will have been sexually molested at some point. Most of the men surveyed struggled with pornography. Most of the singles were sexually active. Six out of ten thought that living together would be a good idea. Five out of ten had already done it. One in seven struggled with drugs or alcohol. Nearly two out of five struggled with smoking. And 85% in Austin, at least, were unchurched. And so Burke and this group decided if they were going to reach people like that and show them the love of Christ, that they, they were going to have to create a very different culture at church. They decided to call it Come As You Are Church. They would welcome people at church no matter what they looked like or lived like or smelled like. They would meet them wherever they were without passing judgment and patiently and graciously lead them to Christ, show them the truth, Model Christ for them, who alone could save them and change them and deal with the mud. And so on the first day of their church, they adopted a motto, no perfect people allowed. And since that day, they've seen hundreds, even thousands of people come to know Christ and be transformed. We are called to follow Christ's example. We are to welcome all people, to show them love and mercy to point them to the love and the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. Mercy means everybody's welcome. It means we focus on the masterpiece and not the mud. Jesus Christ said, Blessed are the merciful. So how are we to respond? What can we learn from this meal that Jesus shared with Simon the Pharisee and this unnamed woman? Well, we can ask God to give us eyes to see people as children of God, not sinners covered with mud. And we can ask God to give us ears that listen and not minds that jump to judgment. And we can ask God to give us tender hearts that look beyond people's faults and see their need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that um, you create us in your image and that 
you look beyond our sin and our flaws and you send your son, Jesus Christ, to love us, to show us the truth, to call us to repentance. You meet us at our point of need. We thank you for that, Father. Lord, we pray that we would be people um, who are much, much more like Jesus than we are Simon the Pharisee. That we would see people as you see them. That we would love people as you love them. That we would, that we would welcome them and, and, and come alongside them to model and teach the truth with love and the hope and the belief that you will work in their lives to bring them to a place of transformation and of change, of salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you are merciful to us. Help us, Lord, to be merciful to others. Amen.